Hey family, welcome to the Kinship Collective Podcast. I'm Mark and we are ending otherness. Welcome to a conversation that cultivates kinship through storytelling, scripture, and invites us to service. Today, we get to hang with Dr. Jeff Leo. He joins us to share about his new book, Christianity and Critical Race Theory. We get to talk about some of his early memories of racism, the ways he felt discrimination and what it feels like for him to get rooted in the person and work of Jesus. Then we talk about the God who celebrates our uniqueness, like putting our personality on a heavenly refrigerator, as we see that through Revelation chapter 21. Also, last call, For cohort members, the Reimagine cohort is launching this Thursday, April 27th in Pasadena, Thursday nights at 7.30. You can reach out, let me know if you wanna join us. We have a couple spots left. You can find more information at kinshipcollective.org slash reimagine-cohort. Without further ado, here's Jeff Leo. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have with us PhD in the life work ethics of MLK, Dr. Martin Luther King. To me, most importantly, I think most personally, I know this brother to be someone committed to people, committed to change. I remember conversations where I would emphasize um, being inspired and chasing courage or inspiration in that way. And I remember his. Uh, gracious. And um, the, the the way that a teacher, I think, would look at a student when you say, okay, I can see that. And I know there's more. And I know there's another way to get after this. I see him as I've experienced him to be someone who's really wants to turn the needle on a systemic change um, and who has given a lot of work and a lot of time. And so when I think about large systems and isms that we might face. I've seen him in the midst of that fighting for justice and biblical justice and gospel centered justice. I also think that I've experienced him to do that in the, in the system of lives and the way people have carried systems from maybe their family of origin. Um, he's walked alongside people to help them encounter uh, justice and wholeness and shalom in their personal lives. So ladies and gentlemen, would you give it up for Dr. Jeff Leo? Hey. <laughs> oh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yes, man. I, I'm, I'm really glad that you could be here with us to share some of your story and some of the book that you're working on that, that, you've, that is coming to release. I think next Tuesday it'll ship out to homes. That's right. Yep. Uh, for, the 25th is release day. Absolutely. Jeff, I'm going to call you Jeff throughout here. I'm like, Dr. Leo, Dr. Jeff, Dr. Uh, Pastor. It's all good. It's all good. (laughs) Jeff is fine. Jeff, for those who don't know you, I think it's it's more important for them to kind of know who you are and the things that drive you before we get into this incredible resource that that comes out into the world. Um, Today, actually, when this podcast releases and your book will release, Share with us a little bit about who you are, the things that make you tick and the values that drive your life. Yeah, who am I? Well, uh, my name is Jeff Leo. 
I live in Southern California with my wife of 20 years and uh, mm. two teenage children. Um, but uh, at the core, who I am is who God calls me to be. And um, that's a person who's been taken captive by the love of God in Jesus Christ, uh, who's been forgiven and redeemed, and who enjoys uh, being uh, taken captive for uh, service to the gospel. So I'm an ordained clergy person in the Christian Reformed Church in North America, and uh, I've been in college and young adult ministry uh, since 2001. So it's it's been a minute. Mm. When you talk about being captivated, in my mind, when I think about who you are, um, that's an intentional choice for you to locate yourself in that way first. Why is it important? Why is it so important for you to locate yourself that way? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I'm taken captive and I'm captivated. The love of God in Jesus Christ has my full attention. Mm. What God has done for me and for us and for your listeners is uh, I can't compare it to anything else. I experience it in ways that uh, there's nothing like it. So it's captivating. But also, you know, I say that I've been taken captive because when I think about what it means to be a clergy person, what it means to be a minister or a pastor, um, these are people who, after the pattern of the Old Testament, um, they have been set aside for service to God. Mm. And that kind of setting aside is uh, kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. Uh, so it seems like a big deal to me. Mm. Uh, so that's why I pursued ordination in the first place. I'm not the pastor of a church, mm-hmm. but I thought because I am a servant of the gospel and uh, I do care about the uh, faith trajectory of people from cradle to grave, uh, that uh, that seems to be congruent to the calling that I perceive uh, coming from God. So taken captive by him, set aside f- by him for um, service unto uh, his people. Mm-hmm. So for some of the listeners, they might be... Um post-church, they might have um, old church wounds that that might uh, color how they interpret what you're saying. Would you communicate for you and your understanding of like, can you break down what some of those, what when you say like taking captive of the gospel and this is, um, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I could say it this way, right? Like, um, for your audience members who know church hurt and know uh, pastors who are uh, wolves and not shepherds, mm. uh, um, we don't do this for the money. Mm-hmm. We don't do this for the power. We don't do this for the fame. I'm not looking for a platform. I didn't write a book because I want to get famous. I didn't, run, I didn't write a book on a controversial topic that the uh, far right hates and will um, uh, provoke their followers to violence so that I could be happy or safe. I didn't do it for that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're taken captive for God's purposes, um, God sets before us uh, joy, mm. adventure, excitement, um, in the midst of a broken world. I, I think what it means to be taken captive is to acknowledge that all of us are chasing this kind of peace and restfulness that the Bible calls shalom, and that we only find it when we do it um, in response to a God who loves us. Mm. And not on our own agenda, not following the ideologies of the world, not following the celebrity pastors of the world. That kind of stuff will just mess you up. Mm. Okay. I think that that's, I think that's helpful context. <laughs> and uh, 
I, I remember being in a room recently and like the, the importance of language became really evident where, you know, we could be saying the same exact words and two people from different spaces would have completely different meanings around those words. It's absolutely. So for you, Jeff, when, when I think about the context that you come from to have written a book and to have dedicated so much of your life to Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and ethics and theology and work. What do you think it is about your story and your life that put you on a trajectory to that kind of passion, that kind of commitment to those kinds of values? Yeah, I mean, I think it's experiencing injustice that turned me onto this stuff. I, I was looking for uh, ways of being, ways of thinking, uh, ways of uh, being a Christian. Um, in the world that uh, directly addressed some of the things that I had experienced. So I'll give an example. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, and um, when I was able to drive uh, at 16, started taking myself to um, the Tulsa Chinese Christian Church, uh, still there today. And I remember I showed up one Sunday morning, and I noticed a commotion outside the building. And the church exterior had been spray-painted with a swastika and a message telling, telling us to die, uh, but misidentifying us as Koreans, right, using the Korean slur instead of, you know, <laughs> a, a culturally, ethnically accurate slur, which <laughs> yeah. I don't care that they do that. But um, that kind of uh, racial violence kind of sticks out in my mind. And, and so I, I would begin to wonder, like, what is the kind of a way of being in the world mm -hmm. that helps me to engage what happens to me psychically when I'm impacted by this this kind of um, anti-Asian violence. So um, I feel very um, pleased to have um, kind of come upon the the life and work of Martin Luther King and um, the the theological tradition that I'm a part of, which is the Dutch Reformed tradition, and and so many other resources that I find uh, directly engage. Uh, issues of racial justice. Mm. When you mentioned racial justice and you you mentioned the Dutch Reformed Church, would you share with us how those two tie in for you and how they feel yeah. so aligned? Well, they don't feel aligned, and that's part of the that's part of the issue, right? Uh -huh. Okay. So so for those who are not familiar with the Dutch Reformed tradition, like um you got the Reformation, which is emerging from the Catholic tradition, right? You got Martin Luther, et cetera. That, that's in Germany. Then um, around the same time, the the malcontent uh, expressed toward the Catholic Church is happening around Europe. And one of the places is in the, in the Netherlands. And, and there are uh, folks who are thinking about breaking away and, and developing new theologies. And uh, two of the figureheads, the, the writers that uh, I had to had to read and get familiar with Abram Kuyper and Herman Bavink. Um, that puts me in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Now, having said all that, this was also the same time in which the worst forms of racism were becoming very popular. The worst ways of thinking about human bodies mm. were um, all the rage. Um, and not every Dutch Reformed thinker was immune to that. So some accepted the racial pseudoscience of the day. Mm. And others thought, you know, this is whack. It just it doesn't make sense. It, it, it's leading to all these bad outcomes. But they didn't have the kind of tools to dismantle it, right? Uh, that, that didn't happen until later for the globe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so that's the tradition that I'm a part of. And so it, it's complicated, right? Like, mm. I'm a part of this tradition that um, 
some folks, especially in South Africa, would say is, is directly responsible for the architecture of apartheid. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so that's what I mean by how they fit together. Yeah. <laughs> it's a strained relationship. So while I know that there are significant problems, I also see significant resources mm-hmm. for liberation and for a, a retelling of what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That, that, um, there's a couple of things there that I think you said that are really important, um, are really important to me. And, uh, we, you know, there's important things all over yeah. the place. But one thing I think when you talked about the architecture, again, this is to me why I think your voice is so helpful and so meaningful, at least it's been to me. And I know it will be to those who read your book when you, th- you're thinking about what kinds of beliefs set the foundation for this kind of practice or way of being. Mm-hmm. This doesn't begin. We don't just begin splitting this and that. It becomes there's a there's a foundation that is built that allows that. So when you talked about the foundation of apartheid, right. that was big. Right. Then you talked about the last thing you said, which I'm, I I might have missed it or I might, it's slipping me now. But you talked about how can I um, redefine mm-hmm. what it means yep. to be Christian. Or almost like yeah. reimagine, or uh, yeah. I'm thinking about reunveil, unveil a different way of being in the world, which I think is what right. Jesus did Himself. Right. Right. But another thing that I think the more most important thing I think that came to my mind was many of us we come from a tradition, you become in tune with that tradition, and then you can understand. Okay, there's some things that need to be revolutionized here. And, and revolutionary, meaning rooted or get back to the roots of what this is supposed to be or it's um, the good DNA that it's had. And so for me, I hear that in you. I think that it makes sense that many of our, the kind of prophetic voices, you come from a place, you get in tune with that place, you may go away from that place and then you look back at it or you come out of it and you start to feel the angst of being in it and then you kind of wrestle then your hip gets mm-hmm. displaced, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then you come back yeah. and you have something to say. You can kind of yeah. speak the language and point to the things again and then get into the DNA of where you see the foundations maybe right. awry and try to like right. rebuild. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, case in point is uh, white nationalism as a form of uh, Protestant uh, Christianity, mm. right? Like if that's what you grew up on, and you're deconstructing that because that that it, it's wreaked all kinds of havoc on your soul. Mm-hmm. Like what you're actually deconstructing has so little to do with what the God, uh, what the Bible um, holds out for us in terms of what the gospel really is. That if you reject Christianity because you're rejecting white nationalism, boy, what a tragedy, right? Um, mm. Because it's a false target. It, it's 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 like um, saying. Well, I don't know what the right analogy is going to be, but it's a false target, right? Like uh, it, it's saying I'm rejecting this, uh, but actually you're rejecting something else entirely. Right. And 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 that that to me is the tragedy that I see happening over and over again. Um, the way I put it in other places is like rejecting the center without ever having spent time in the center. Mm. Mm. Um, and rejecting bastardizations of the center which I find fully appropriate, Mm -hmm. Um, but not knowing um, the hope held out for us in the gospel. Mm. I think that gets back to that language piece where, and I I think it actually gets back to, for me, like Christianity in the United States, for me, Mm -hmm. I just think that it's a long, 
what I experienced. So I, I'm in seminary and then I had this moment of like, I do the Christian, you know, the history of Christian, you know, American church history kind of deal. And I'm yeah. like, what? And I just start yeah, to be sure. like, what? this is, I mean, I just started to like, oh, we've been trying to like pack as many people under a tent to listen to like the messianic person since we mm-hmm. came here problematically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is not what I think it should look like or could most beautifully look like. And so when I hear you saying these, the similar ideas of like, for me, if that is what we think Christianity is, or we've been raised, or that's what we saw on television, or that's what we saw kind of like held upside down after pushing a bunch of people out of the way to take a picture yeah. or whatever, then yeah. th- then you are, we're associating a couple of things into a thing and you're trying to, maybe yeah. you're trying to reject one, you end up rejecting both. And I don't think there is an issue with rejecting that, but the rooted Christianity of who Christ was and is and can be, that's a mm-hmm. different thing. And and I think yeah. many people are not aware of that or maybe haven't encountered that because I think there's still a Agreed. lot of like um, pseudo Christian stuff out there. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree that it, 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 it's not easy to find a space where um, the scriptures are um, taught in a way that uh, g- grants us access to uh, the Jesus of Scripture, mm-hmm. and that's not okay. Would Would you? Um, uh, I got your book, your book stuff up here, and I want to get into that. Yeah. But you just mentioned the way that people being taught in a way that grants access. Mm-hmm. What does that way look like to you? Okay, so he- here's one diagnostic, right? Um, <laughs> We know of Jesus through the testimony that is recorded in uh, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The number of folks, or the percentage of folks, who read the New Testament, or the Bible at all, is relatively small. Mm. So when they reject the tradition, and when they reject the scriptures, what I'm concerned about is that they're rejecting something that they're not familiar with and they haven't read. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I know that to be true, not just of garden variety Americans. Mm -hmm. I also know that to be true of pastors. Mm -hmm. The percentage of pastors who don't read the scriptures, is alarmingly high. Mm -hmm. So when deconstruction takes place after having not read the primary sources, Mm -hmm. what is it that we're rejecting? We're rejecting caricatures and bastardizations of the center. Mm -hmm. Now, when rejections happen from like folks like Bart Ehrman, Right, like a scholar who's who knows the New Testament in and out. When that rejection happens, I'm way more comfortable with that because it's actually a rejection of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I mean by granting access. Which which pastors have done the work to figure out how do we help listeners and congregations really know what this stuff is about? Because I'll give you a case in point. How important is it that when we preach, we preach in such a way that the money comes in? Hmm. Let's say you work at a big church. Wink, wink. <laughs> you got mouths to feed now. You got staff to maintain. You got buildings to keep up. Mm-hmm. Boy, it, it, you got to preach in such a way that um, if, you, if you lose the captive audience, mm-hmm. there, there's financial ramifications. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the ways that um, 
access directly to the unpopular, radical, liberating Jesus uh, can be muted mm-hmm. or um, kind of swept under the rug. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is the the what access means is let's get to the let's get to the actual reading of scripture. Let's do work to get to the actual context, the actual yeah. um, voices, the ancient. What did this mean then? What could it mean now? Um, yeah. Instead of yeah. yeah, okay, okay, yeah, I feel that. All right. Speaking of your book. <laughs> You and Dr. Robert Chow Romero wrote Christianity and Critical Race Theory, A Faithful and Constructive Conversation. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your book, why you wrote it, and what you guys hope for it to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why we wrote it, I'll put this in story form. You know, um, when 2016 happened, and I, that's the way I say it. Yeah. 2016 happened to us, mm-hmm. man. It's just like 2016 took place and it it hit us hard. Mm. Um, there were many students across many campuses who were deeply grieved by the events of 2016. Before that and after that. I mean, before that and after that, things were already rough. Um, uh, and what Robert and I have watched is a steady trickle of young people, and especially young people of color, um, out of the church, out of many churches out of their own traditions, out of their home traditions, out of uh, white evangelical spaces, just like a, a, a really significant attrition mm-hmm. of young people from um, the wider Christian um, tent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was so tragic to us, so deeply disturbing to us. Like we were deeply moved in, in our souls about that problem. I watched folks leave the church where I was working at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that they were pursued. I don't think that they were cared for well. Um, And that broke my heart. Mm. This book flows out of that pain. Mm. And it's written to and for those folks who are still longing for a home. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. It tells about the uh, racial pain that we experience. It tells about the common sense that we know about what the church is and what it can do, both good and bad. Mm Um, and uh, we're trying to articulate this in order to carve out, whether it's new space or to call the North American Church to repentance or all of the above, like that's what we're trying to do together and um, trying to do that through a framework, critical race theory, that we have found um, powerful in its critique, uh, although uh, not con- uh, not completely overlapping with the, our uh, understanding of the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. So for those who are listening and they're unfamiliar with uh, CRT, the base definition, they n- understand that things are happening politically around this. They understand that that it is becoming a hot button issue. Would you define yeah. that and then talk about for you when you're talking about the the ways that the ideologies of critical race theory and uh, I, would, I don't know if you just mentioned faithful witness or the way that, let's say, the center or how does that align with Christ? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So this is a a great example of the phenomenon that I was talking about earlier, rejecting the center without knowing the center. Mm -hmm. Like this is happening for all of those culture warriors on Fox News, et cetera, that are just like blasting critical race theory, school boards that are um, creating new policies Mm -hmm. to block certain readings of tech. Like what they're doing is they're reacting to something they have no idea about. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so they reject everything without knowing what's in it. Mm. We, we want to avoid that fundamentalist impulse. All, all your listeners want to avoid that, w- whether it's CRT or the Christian tradition itself. Like, we want to avoid that impulse. We want to slow down, take a breath, and ask ourselves what's really in it. Mm. So I'll talk about CRT for just a second. It's a scholarly approach to legal studies, okay? Not a lot of legal scholars I know, personally. I mean, I know Robert, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know a few others. I, uh, um, uh, I don't know what percentage of your listenership is legal scholars. Yeah. <laughs> so bottom line is, like, there's not a lot of folks for whom this is, like, their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not happening in the public schools. And, you know, people want to say that it is, it isn't, it is, it isn't. I, I'm not going to get into that. Mm-hmm. But it is a scholarly... Um, approach to legal studies. There are derivative versions, critical race theory in education, critical race theory in mathematics, critical race theory in literature and film studies. There are other derivations like Asian crit, Lat crit for Latino, Latina folks, um, et cetera. There's all these different derivations. And what it does, it takes a look at how race is still at work in the systems and structures of um, American jurisprudence, namely the legal system. Mm. How does race work in the legal system? Can the legal system, the way that it's established and the founding documents and all that kind of stuff, can it really achieve the promise of a diverse, uh, reconciled, just, equitable nation? CRT folks typically say no. Um, Not without significant remediation, not without significant repair. Mm. How does it align with Jesus? Jesus takes a look at the system. He looks at the temple. He says, I'm going to overthrow this thing. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Why? It's not working. It's oppressing people. It's hurting people. Despite whatever intentions, good or bad, it's not working. So Jesus comes to establish in himself um, a a new people built on the love of God and the justice of God and the goodness of God. Um, So that's how, in my mind, I don't know if alignment's the right word, but they, there is some overlap there, significant overlap with you know, people long for justice. Mm-hmm. I think that longing has been placed there in us by, by God, and Jesus realizes that in a very, very important, very real way uh, for the people who chose to join his uh, strange new group. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you walking us through that and, and, and through how you're seeing them together. Tell me what your hope is for this book. So you wrote this sure. book again, you, and you just told us those people who you saw, they couldn't um, vibe with, they couldn't be aligned with the church that they were experiencing, the theology that they were experiencing. You felt so. What I heard you say was, "We're trying to give them space, or trying to give them maybe imagination for a a theology that honors who they are, their race, their experience, and is." So what would that look like? What does that look like, um, the completion of that? Or let's say like the, the it releases on Tuesday. You can't even find it anywhere. It's ridiculous. You just have to like, the boxes in your garage, you're selling for 300 bucks a pop. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you, you're, what does it look like when that happens? Yeah. Well, you're, you're, th- this is a great exercise in imagination. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we are looking for the day in which uh, we can bring all of who we are um, to God and um, 
let God do what God does with who we are, hmm. right? So well, that, um, we have... I yeah. want to pause you I, because I... Maybe I, I pause you. I hate that I interrupted you, but I almost feel like that's okay. Because what we're not, no one ever left because they felt unaccepted by God. They felt unaccepted by a community that claimed to represent God. Sure. And so, I mean, and, and you know, I don't know that that's the point that you're making. When, yeah, not not so much. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I think what I'm trying to say is like you're asking, what does it look like at the end, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, and therefore, I'm trying to imagine, what does it mean that at the end, I bring God all of who I am and give it to God and let God do with it what God does? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's the difficult imagination work. So I say, I'm Taiwanese American. And I ask, I ask God, God, what do you want to do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, God does have an answer through the scripture. Mm-hmm. It says, I, I take all these things. I, I take the, the quote-unquote wealth of nations. I take your very best mm-hmm. of who you think you are. And he uses this you know, theological word. He says, I sanctify it. I take it. I transform it. I cleanse it. I, um, I put it on my refrigerator. That's the way I've put it in some other place. I, I put it on my refrigerator. You know, like when you got kids, they, they create something. Here it is. You know, this is the, this, I'm so proud of this work. And, you know, you look at it and you're, Tempted for a second to throw it away because this is the 20th piece of artwork from kindergarten. You know you know what I'm talking about, Mark. I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Open house was last um, night for us, so we just came home okay, with yeah, all the things. You get a packet. Yeah, all the things. <laughs> yeah, you get a packet of things. And, um, you know, you're going to save some of them. Maybe you'll throw them away eventually, but I don't know. Um, but God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this, and I'm going to, quote, adorn my temple. Hmm. I find that to be so compelling. Like, which parts of us is God going to say, yes, this, mm-hmm. I'm going to adorn my temple with this. Mm-hmm. Now, the church has said something quite different. Church has said, I don't want that. I don't need that. You know, uh, in fact, it's not welcome here. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. So for God to say, in so many different cases, I will adorn my temple with this. And I find that tremendously healing. Mm-hmm. I, and, and, and that's the picture of the future that I'd, lo- I'd love to experience personally. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that feels even just so refreshing to hear you frame it that way. And I love that. It, it, again, it's coming directly from center or source as you've kind of framed them in our conversation that the scripture says, while you have felt pressure to uh, discard, um, abdicate parts of your identity, racially or other to try to fit into a religious system that claimed to represent Christ that the scriptures would say it is the very things that make you distinct and that God would celebrate, put on God's refrigerator and say that that's what gives my temple character and beauty adornment are the distinct uh, uniquenesses of who we are that's extraordinary. It's just crazy that there are just so few quote unquote temples that I think reflect that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah, uh, it, it's a tragedy. And, and that's why we saw so many young people leave. And that's why we wrote the book. But, you know, I got to say, Mark, there's a, there's a other side to the coin, right? So 
Um, mm. The other side of what God says in these passages is um, no impure thing will enter. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you want to bring your best, okay, but let's say my best is nationalism and violence. Mm-hmm. God says no impure thing is going to enter. So it's up to God what God will do with the things that we think are the best thing about us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's um, up to us to listen carefully to what those what those things are. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it, it's not that anything goes. It's not that people can sit there happily and be violent and, and think that that's going to uh, be blessed of God. Mm-hmm. Like, just, just know. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of, uh, I think, Corinthians, maybe chapter 3. Uh, but there's a there's a portion where Paul's talking about the the chaff and the silver and and the gold and the things that run through kind of like where I think the refining fire song comes from. <laughs> but there's yeah. that there there's a, a portion of scripture where it talks about that these things will go through the fire and we'll yes. see what is what and we'll see what was yeah. um, true or what what is worthy of adornment yeah. and what is not. Yes, uh-huh. we will see that that is so key, Mark. We will see. Um, we will get the opportunity to behold it, and um, we're going to find that we were wrong in a lot of cases, mm. which is is the case for humility in this life. And then we're going to find that we were right, which is the case for boldness in this life. Mm-hmm. So we live in between um, humility and boldness in um, the pursuit of racial justice. Mm-hmm. When you mention boldness to me, I think about, I think for me personally, so this becomes like a, boldness is a, it's a challenge for me. I think my natural disposition is uh, inquisition, curiosity, and affirmation. I'm a natural. Mm-hmm. I want to affirm everything good in someone, and yeah. And for me, boldness has been a practice and a challenge. You know, in the past year, to be bold and to even make a bold claim about something that mm-hmm. uh, I sense or something I feel or. Uh, yeah. So when you talk about, you know, when you mention that, that boldness, I just think about yeah. the ways that, again, that the system uh, acquiesces, the system, um, uh, it, it doesn't like tame us, but it, it really trains us, I guess I would say, depending on what religious systems you come from, the yeah. family of origin. Again, these things are really culture of origin. Like all these things play a part in our ability to be humble and our ability to be bold. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think of that um, term that Christians tend to throw around, that, that term prophetic. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> half the time when someone calls you prophetic, it's a backhanded uh, compliment, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you said the thing that nobody wanted you to say, but you said it anyway, like good for you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's like, okay, you told the truth. But on the other hand, it's like, nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. Like, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and um, so boldness is a, is a part of that. It's, it's the ability to, I think in, in this case, it's the ability to say the thing that needs to, to speak the truth to power. So, you know, uh, I appreciate your um, self-critique there, Mark, that you're the, you're the kind of person who wants to affirm everybody and, and find the positive thing. I think that's beautiful in part because I can't do it. Like I'm the guy who's mm. actually a little bit different. I'm I'm like I see the negative. Mm-hmm, I I, mm-hmm. I have a critique ready to go, mm-hmm. and I'm constantly trying to temper that, mm. right? Because like um, I spend too much time in that place. Um, so there's good things and bad things. But when you fill an entire church with people who only affirm or people who only critique, mm-hmm. 
I think you're going to end up with a toxic space either way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think, mm. you know, you and me, we need each other, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that when you talked about like, I'm trying to temper that, I think that the invitation to maturity for both of us, for me, the invitation is to be more bold, more critical. Uh, and that your invitation is to be more affirming or however you would frame that for you. But that's the invitation to maturity is yeah. that we move to me to towards the center and towards more whole kind of perspective and also behavior and being in the world. So that's the, but if, if I could, if I could make it really concrete, Mark, because I, I don't want it to just be about like, um, a person's effort, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it's not just on you. Right. But I, I want to raise the stakes because like in 2020 at the, at, at, when anti-Asian racism was spiking again, mm -hmm. um, I, I got to tell you, man, I couldn't have felt more alone. Mm. Because there are all these really, really nice and affirming clergy who weren't willing to say the hard things to the congregation. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do was affirm, affirm, affirm. And in fact, in when I finally got attacked personally, um, the, the clergy who were working with my attacker, I don't think had that kind of boldness to say that it's not okay. Um, so I, I personally know what it means to... Um, kind of, kind of be left hanging, mm -hmm. you know. Can you uh, left high and dry? Yeah. Can you share a bit more about what that meant for you when you share about this moment where you feel attacked and apparently it's a part of like a community that you're a part of, and then you're like hoping for some sort of justice, um, yeah, yeah. and and it just doesn't come. Can you help us ex understand what that meant? Sure, as much as you sure. can. Well, I, yeah. Obviously, I don't want to share too many details, um, um, although parts of it are in the book. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what I will say is this. Um, I had a series of really devastating things happen to me at the height of anti-Asian racism in 2020. Mm. And um, I think that the way that pastors are trained can incline them um, to comfort the perpetrator and not the victim. Mm. And what that meant for me was a feeling that I did not have a home um, and I did not have a safe place and that my um, attackers and abusers, um, that they were being um, preferred. Now, that's not the whole story. There's a lot more that happens, and that part's not in the book, and I have I have hopefulness about it. Mm -hmm. But at the time, like I'm, I'm trying to say I'm acquainted with mm -hmm. um, the feelings of abandonment and um, betrayal um, from people who I thought had my best interest at heart. Mm. When you say that the attack... Uh... Are you are you at liberty to share what it was that you experienced from this person? You know, the the longer I get perspective on the series of things that happened, mm -hmm. um, the less important it is to me to relitigate those things and retell those yeah. things. I mean, um, I can tell those stories in in the confidence of a smaller group of trusted folks, but. What yeah. I don't want to happen is to let that narrative get away from from me, and and certainly, you know, your listenership is overlapping with, uh, you know, the places that I'd be referring to. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I don't want to make it 
what I don't want is for folks to begin litigating the places that you and I used to hang out. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for me, what I um, I know that there are people, you know, we we've had several conversations, especially during some of those spaces, to talk about with Asian sisters and brothers about what that moment felt like and and their stories in that moment. For me, I just wanted to give people, and it's almost like, you know, we don't definitely don't need to like, you don't need to go in any places that don't serve you, especially as it relates to your journey around that. And yeah. we also don't need to like re-traumatize people to remind them that like all the things that we know are happening. But I know that yours is, there's there's not just nuance, but that you have experienced some certain things and I think that people yeah. could probably relate to those even on a on a high level of what that looked like. Yeah, yeah. Sure, I, I think that's true. I, I think I can kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the, the higher level dynamics. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I remember walking down the street in Pasadena and um, one day it's a it's a brown kid, one day it's a black kid, one day it's a white kid who throws an anti-Asian slur at me. It just depends on the day. Mm. Um, and that generating the feeling that Asian Americans are not safe in any community. Mm. And then going to our home communities mm -hmm. and hearing all kinds of crazy stuff mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and feeling like we're not safe in our own home communities and, and really wondering, is there any space for us? And frankly, I know plenty of folks um, of many different ages who feel like they have no safe space to be in. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that stuff is crazy making, Mark. I mean, it, it just makes you feel like man, does anybody care? Does anybody love me? Mm -hmm. And um, the truth is, yes, yes, someone does love you mm. deeply, mm -hmm. deeply enough to, you know, to, to, to die for you, mm. um, to go the distance for you, to redeem you and to rescue you and to incorporate you into um, a place where there's healing um, and to give you a future and a hope. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. I love hearing that. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing more about that and, and reminding yourself and us about the reality of the truth behind some of the, the voices that might tell us something different. So I love, I have known you and I've known your pastoring style. And I know that you've been the kind of person that empowered people that walk through the text to get familiar with the text, to give context and to help people feel like they can embrace and understand what's being said. And I also know that that kind of pastoring leadership doesn't build mega churches. It really doesn't. It has Thanks be to God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks be to God. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> it's interesting because I just think that when I think of your leadership and when I think of the wake of your leadership, it was like it was countercultural to maybe some of the larger systems around and but it was so long lasting. So I still, you know, see some of the people that were, I think that the trajectory of their faith was um, really empowered. But you talked about that word empower or um, access, that they gained access to scripture and communication with God from God in a different way that has, I think, propelled them and continue to sustain them in their journeys from what I can see from where I sit. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Shout out to your previous guests, um, Elizabeth Barrios mm. and Melody Gerges. Yeah. Uh, th they honor me in in their mentions of me, and I'm so grateful to them for their friendship. So go li go listen to those episodes. And um, 
I, I think one thing to observe is as much as I want to give them access and empowerment, like um, they've taken it to places that um, I couldn't have imagined, some places I can't follow, mm -hmm. but um, I'm proud of who they're becoming. And I'm so glad that they've uh, rooted themselves in um, the Jesus that I was hoping that they would see. Mm. That's extraordinary. Well, what I want to do now then is get us rooted in a text and just imagine it together. Uh, I think of it, you know, a little Lectio Divina kind of style thing where we just kind of imagine. We, we looked at a text before, but we've talked so much about the Revelation passage in the Isaiah. I'm thinking I might audible us to Revelation 21. So I'm just going to do that and we're going to see what, yeah. what comes of it. I think about, I did a podcast series uh, called Realizing Revelation 7-9, and we would just talk with different spiritual leaders, uh, and they would share their stories of what it meant to be kind of in a, in a faith system that was, where they were experiencing a lot of, uh, let's say, racism, or they, they just kind of celebrate their story and talk about what does it look like to be a spiritual leader in the midst of like this? What does it mean to be a spiritual leader of color in the midst of this? So anyway, when I think of Revelation, my mind goes into that passage and all the different imaginations. So we just, you know, every guest, we would just go straight into that passage. Today, we go to Revelations 21. I'm reading from the First Nations version. I've been... Uh, reading this uh, version since uh, it was recommended to me from Brandy Miller on the Reclaiming Our Theology podcast. She's an extraordinary leader um, out in Seattle, and she's just an extraordinary human being. Okay. I'm looking at Revelations 20, 21. Mm -hmm. This one's different too, all nations. Yeah, it might go down to verse 22. Okay, okay. Ooh, sheesh. The First Nations version is so interesting here. I'm, going, I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. So I'm just going to read verses, chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Right. And we'll see uh, what comes up for us. <sighs> Again, I'm, I'm usually trying to give a little context for the passage before we get into it. John, one of Jesus' trusted followers, has been uh, isolated to an island and has this vision of the future. Some theologians will say that he is talking about Nero, or that is kind of uh, talking about this season that will happen with the Roman Empire. Um, there's different ways of understanding or, or interpreting what is said, but John is giving this vision for a revelation for the future. We don't know how immediate or how far that's the, there's interpretation around that. So here we are in chapter 21, verse 22. John says, I could know, I could see no sacred lodge within the village because the all powerful and honored Spirit chief and the lamb are its sacred lodge. In this village, there's no need for the sun or the moon to shine its light, for the light comes from the beauty of the great spirit shining through the lamb. All the nations will walk by its light and the chiefs of the earth will bring their honor and beauty into the sacred village. 
its gates will not be closed during the day. Night will never come and the beauty and honor of all nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure or anyone who participates in shameful ways will go through the gates. Only the ones whose names are written down in the Lamb's book of life will be able to enter. Revelations 21 verses 22 through 27. So, Jeff, what comes up for you when you hear that today, thinking about our conversation? Yeah, I I think this is a part of the future hope that um, uh, John intended for his uh, weary audience living under the foot of the empire. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can't really preach this text or read this text and miss that reality that this was written to folks who were weary. Mm. Uh, if you're comfortable today and you read this text for yourself um, and you forget that this was written for weary people, you forget something really important. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a way of saying that the chiefs or the kings of the earth, um, that um, weary people will see the vindication of the God in whom they place their trust because all these different kings... Mm -hmm. All the best folks around the world, they are one day going to realize that there is a king above them. There is a, there is a sovereign above them. Um, the great spirit, as the, the TNV calls it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, First Nations Version calls mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for, for our book, we really focus on uh, verse 26. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Nation Version says the, the beauty and the honor, right? So in, in my version here, glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. That That's that refrigerator thing mm-hmm, that I was talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. earlier. We bring our best. Every nation's going to bring their best mm-hmm. because you have this sovereign, um, this wonderful great spirit um, who we call God, who's waiting um, to receive from us. And um, we get to watch that happen. Uh, and if God is the one in whom we've placed our trust, then we will have a sense that, yeah, um, vindication for us weary folks. <clears throat> Jeff, when you when you started to recap that for me, and when I start to imagine uh, <laughs> refrigerator God and the God that's mm. celebrating our best and celebrating these traits of us, I'm going back to 26. I'm going to read it again. Mm. The beauty and honor of all the nations will be brought into it. To me, it stirs up some thoughts about conversations that uh, you know, I'm trying to uh, go there go there yeah for me I've had conversations with really good people who are doing uh, really good work around racial justice and it still feels like a bit askew for me. Like it still feels like Mm -hmm. a bit of a miss. People are doing like dedicating thousands of dollars and they're thinking long view. They've committed decades of their own money, of their own life and service to like advancing a system or advancing like the issues of racial justice for... (sighs) For you, when so when and the reason that it has felt askew to me is because 
it seems as though it doesn't quite take into consideration the the beauty and honor of all the nations. I don't know how to say it. Like they're working for, it's almost like they're working in the name of Christ for Christ's sake in a way that kind of honors the beauty of the nations that maybe aren't included or are encountering marginalization or discrimination. But it's like Jesus or Christ is like the ultimate goal. We're doing that, but it doesn't quite honor the beauty of each like tradition. It's almost like trying, and again, this is my interpretation of my experiences with some of these leaders. They're people that I think are great people but it just mm-hmm, doesn't mm-hmm. quite ring as like the kind of celebration. Mm-hmm. Let's put that culture on the refrigerator. It's like, let's put Jesus on the refrigerator. And then right. all those kind of cultural aspects, we're going to like work for those things, but we don't, we're not quite cherishing the beauty of those nations yet. Yeah. What, what would you speak to that? I mean, I, I feel like I know that phenomenon. Um, I think it's possible for really, really well-intended folks who... <laughs> win awards for their service to a community to still have really a a negative outlook on the people that they serve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like um, I know folks like that. They're very serious about equity. They think resources should be radically redistributed, redistributed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when they talk about the communities that they serve, there's evidence of some kind of battle fatigue that leads to jadedness um, which leads to descriptions of the people that they serve that are less than respectful. Mm. I, I, I know I, I've experienced some of those things. Um, we refer to it, uh, Robert and I refer to it as deficit thinking, mm-hmm. that it's possible to be serious about serving community, but to do so because all you see there is what they're lacking. And it will lead you to address some of the systemic uh, 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 material problems in a community. But um, if you if you don't see assets in a community and you primarily work there because of deficits, mm-hmm. you are very likely to dishonor the people that you're, you're claiming to serve. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a real danger. I mean, I suppose it could be worse. It could, we, we could just neglect them altogether, mm-hmm. but real damage can be done when you don't see an a- assets in the community. And so I, I think this way of looking at um, revelation 21, 26, it's, it's a great reminder to, to make sure we're also looking for assets and really to ask God to show us what those assets are, because the next verse is, it's that flip side of the coin that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, it's not anything goes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so, um, but it's good to ask. It's, it's good to ask, what are the assets here? Not just what are the deficits? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, it, there's so many different things that change our view or experience of a culture or a people. And there can be like so many, I'm imagining people, like when you have these uh, confirmation bias uh, encounters yeah. and you just keep on, you know, I, you know, you're, you're trying to do something good. You're trying to work towards an imagined new reality where little black boys and little white girls can play together in unity. And, but you're, you're, you're having these, you're, you're in the trenches, so to speak, and you keep kind of encountering these things that are that are allowing you to hold this different view uh, maybe a pejorative view it makes me think of like messiah complex and then you you start to then you have a a skewed view of your role and what you can do 
And I, honestly, like even as I say that out loud, I'm like imagining like how am I doing that? And there are real ways. It's almost both in because some of the populations that I serve and I'm most passionate about coming alongside and um, working together with, there's like real, like I have real access that they don't. And I'm trying to like do something about that. that there's like real things that I have that they don't. What would you speak to that? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'd tell a story. Um, early on in being a pastor, like uh, I want to say early 20 teens, I was uh, taking some college students to grab a burger. These happened to be two brown students. I was taken taken to grab a burger, and you know, I, I was a PhD at the same a PhD student at the same time. So I was conducting a little field research, I guess. <laughs> And um, I just asked him, hey, you know, what did your parents uh, teach you growing up about Asian people like me? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bold question, right? Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. And, and they gave a bold answer. They were just really honest with me. They said, you know, um, Pastor, we were taught that Asians are cheap, stingy, and, and liars. Mm. But here you are taking us to get a burger. So I guess that's not true. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you mentioned confirmation bias, right? Like, um, this is where it gets complicated. Like, it took a deliberate decision and emotional labor for me to consciously decide to work against that stereotype. Mm-hmm. That's energy and time that I owed no one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think what it means to be taken, taken captive by God, for God's purposes, for some of us anyway, is to spend that time and that energy so that the truth can actually shine a little bit. Um, otherwise, my other option is to be like, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't owe you this. Yeah. Um, and there are folks who cannot continue paying the price mm-hmm. because of the damage it will do to them or to their families. And I want to acknowledge that. But um, sometimes there is a, there's a calling mm-hmm. um, to model the way of Jesus. And to spend that time and that energy. Uh, there, there are times when I've been able to do it. And there's times when I have not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what it looks like for me. Yeah. I think that that's like, you know, that feels really full circle. And I think that it it gets to the, some of the heart of this matter and, and what it means to be, I mean, we've talked about race. We've talked a little bit about CRT and, and, your book and why that matters. But to me at the, at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, for me that, that, the, the idea that comes to mind is I think to unveil the kingdom and to participate in the same way that Jesus participated was showing a different way of being that he owed no one that he, um, deliberately and uh, painstakingly and at high cost himself remained true to and continued and maintained integrity to in a way that changed the world and that in a way that like changes my world and the way that I interact with my partner and my children and it's just like that's it's incredible that that choice that his choices did that and and continue to do that it's really powerful and meaningful and so to think about our opportunity as humans 
what does it mean? To me, then it just makes me think of generosity. And like, mm-hmm. how generous can I be? Especially, ugh. And then it makes me, <laughs> my brain's going down the path of like, <laughs> so then for whom am I doing that, right? Like, am I, yeah. am I fighting these stereotypes so that white people can be less judgmental towards black men? Definitely not. Uh, you know, it, again, that's centering whiteness and, and I'm not interested in that. So, you know, it's complicated, but, and it's also simple that like, to be captivated and uh, and I think Jesus is really captivating in that way. I think that it's so empowering to so many marginalized groups. This is how we can change. And I think about your studies of MLK and like mm-hmm. to be captivated in a way that changed America. Uh, yeah. And the world. I mean, he said some crazy stuff, right? He said some really crazy stuff. Like um, I think he would be mindful of what it means to center whiteness, mm-hmm. right? At, at least what we mean by that today. That's not the language you would have used. Mm-hmm. But he was explicit about um, befriending the white man, quote unquote, befriending the white man, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not that centers whiteness is a, an, another matter that that uh, you, you know we could talk about yeah. on another podcast, yeah, right? Yeah. But he was really, really people centered, mm-hmm. um, in part because he believes that people are beloved. Mm-hmm. People are beloved, and if they are beloved. Then, then the person that we're pleasing is the lover. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when we spend our energy, if it's not for the God who loves all these people, we're going to get so tired. I mean, you and I probably both know folks that are burning out, folks who are jaded, because what they're trying to do is live the example of Jesus, but they have no access to the power of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a recipe for burnout, jadedness, um, and in my own experience, self-destruction. Mm, mm-hmm. When I'm at my tiredest, I'm at my worst to myself, to my family. Um, that's not how I want anyone to pursue justice and liberation for um, God's beloved. Mm. Man, Jeff, that's so meaningful. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's so, so just such a helpful reminder uh, to find the spaces where you can be safe, where you can encounter the beloved power of God and to be almost reinvigorated within oneself and even beyond oneself to pursue work that is beyond oneself. The reconciliation that's, that's so costly. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your book. Uh, mine's pre-ordered. I can't wait to get it later today, yeah, hopefully yeah, earlier you. today. Oh my gosh. Um, thank you so and much. And to read it and <laughs> again, to, to be a part of this conversation. So, you guys, we'll put a link to the the book in the show notes that you can order at this particular time and uh, educate yourself to be a part of that, the people working towards that equity and understanding. I love the constructive nature of the book and the constructive nature of both the authors who are incredible human beings. So, Jeff, thank you. Is there any other way that you would want people to get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, happy to have folks uh, reach out to me on my socials. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm still on Facebook. I'm I'm Gen X, <laughs> proudly Gen X. So you can find me on Facebook. Um, yeah, I, so Instagram is great. Uh, be happy to engage with you there. Gotcha. All right, y'all. I, I think to me, a couple of things that stand out from the conversation. One is that the scriptures talk about that there are so many distinct elements of who you are that God will put on the refrigerator 
in the temple, not just the refrigerator, but in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that there are things about you that are other and holy and set apart in ways that God would celebrate and put them on in the temple to adorn them. There's beauty in you. And that we can reimagine um, faith and that it isn't everything that maybe you were told at one point that there is good and beauty to be encountered there. And so I'm really appreciative of your time, Jeff, to remind us of these things. So just know that you are loved and that we are family. Peace.